You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Jenny, the Weevils. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the Sneezy Dog Edition. So at the moment, while I'm visiting family, I am fostering and helping out a little dog that was in a kill shelter here in North Carolina. He'll be up for adoption. We can give you the link to the website. He doesn't love when I record. Sometimes you may hear little noises. He doesn't like me being under a blanket. Jen, why are you recording under a blanket? Oh, in my closet, um, my walk-in closet, it's a little echoey. So I need to record into a box and under a blanket so it's not too echoey. And the tiny dog who has no boundaries also needs to be in here. So yeah, you may hear him. His name is Charlie. He's very sweet. But anyway, this is not Charlie's podcast. It's not, but you wouldn't know it. <laughs> you wouldn't know it. But much like much like his British step foster brother, Tris, he will calm down and rest and be a good boy soon. Okay. Charlie, Jenny, let's talk about why we're here today. Did you know that off the coast of Israel, there is a megalithic semi-stone circle dating back to the 7th century BC? I know, Charlie. And this circle is perfectly preserved. It just sits there on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, keeping its secrets from another time. The secrets of a people whose homes were lost to the waves. This is the story of a prehistoric city. Well, actually, it's a village, but that's splitting hairs, I feel. This city village is off the coast of Israel. This is a village that sank beneath the waves and was so perfectly preserved that its discovery was revolutionary and changed what we thought about the people who lived in this area during the Stone Age. Today, we're going to travel back in time to the Mediterranean coast of Israel and uncover the lives of the people who lived in Atlet Yam. We're going to dive into the past, to a time when the Mediterranean rose up and sunk a village and froze a time, a people, and a way of life in place. Now, before I started this research, I had no idea what or where Atlet Yam was. <laughs> and that's just a total shame because it's fascinating and more people should really know about it. And that's why I'm doing this episode. 
Adlet Yam is a prehistoric, pre-pottery village off the coast of Haifa, Israel. There is evidence of humans living there since around 8,000 BC, but around 7,000 BC, Adlet Yam disappeared beneath the waves. I'm not sure if it's 7,000. Sometimes I've seen between like 6,500 and 7,000. It's a little contested. Although how exactly the village sunk is also being debated today. But before we get to the end of this village, let's talk about its beginning and what life would have looked like there thousands of years ago. Atlet Yam has lain beneath the waves for 9,000 years. You know, roughly in that ballpark. So the difficulty with Atlet Yam is I've seen a bunch of different numbers thrown around. The dramatic number is 9,000 years. I've seen less than that as well. It's tough to know. Um, So we're going with the dramatic number. I would say just do your due diligence yourself if you're quoting us, you know? I mean, I'm sure there's like stuff in that well you could carbon date, but I don't know. There is stuff you can carbon date and that's part of the problem. You know, what came first? Obviously the well. When did it sink? We don't exactly know. So you can carbon date stuff, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the date it sunk. Right. Yeah, that's true. But we do know that there were certain things inside of, we're going to talk about this this well that we're discussing at the moment in a little bit. We do know there are certain things inside of it that give evidence for potentially tsunamis and other things that might have happened when this well was sunk or before it was sunk. So anyway... Atlet Yam has lain beneath the waves for roughly 9,000 years. The dates are disputed. It is located just a kilometer offshore from Haifa, Israel. But the Mediterranean Sea kept it a secret until 1984 when a marine archaeologist named, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, apologies, Ehud Galili, was diving in that area looking for ancient shipwrecks and happened to come across the sunken village. The village itself had only recently been disturbed by sand quarrying in the area. If not for both the sand querying and the chance discovery by this marine archaeologist, we wouldn't have known about the sunken village, whose history would rewrite a lot of what we know about ancient cultures in this area. And this village was perfectly preserved. This is a quote from an article on ancient origins about it. Quote, The prehistoric settlement, which dates back to the 7th millennium BC, has been so well preserved by the sandy seabed that a mysterious stone circle still stands as it was first erected and dozens of human skeletons lay undisturbed in their graves. Atlet Yam is one of the oldest and largest sunken settlements ever found, and sheds new light on the daily lives of its ancient inhabitants. The new scientist also tells us, quote, It has been so well preserved by the sandy seabed that weevils sit in the grain stores, human skeletons lie undisturbed in their graves, and a mysterious stone circle still stands as it was first erected. And I included both of these quotes because I think they both give us a little more detail about the site. And I just have to stop here because, Jenny, the weevils. The weevils are perfectly preserved in the organized grain stores. Like, can you imagine? They're still there. The weevils. How is this grain stored? I don't know because it didn't tell us exactly how it was stored. My guess would be in some kind of stone building because everything they were building at the time was stone. So were the buildings all preserved, like with roofs and walls, or were you just seeing foundations? I think it's just foundations. But the weevils, the weevils are still there. That's pretty crazy. So what happened to this village? How did it end up under the water? Well, before we get to that part, we have to go back to the beginning, to what the Mediterranean would have looked like about 9,000 years ago. We're talking about 8,000 BC to 6,500 BC, about there. So, way back, way back, let's just say, 
the landscape of the coastal cities of the Mediterranean looked very different. During this time period, the seas were rough and much colder. They were also a lot lower, they were shallower and further from the shore. Atlet Yam, which now lies under about 8 to 10 meters or 24 to 30 feet of water, would have been above sea level at the time. It was a village on the coast surrounded by rich, fertile land and a wild, shallow sea. And that's because the temperature in the world at this time was about three degrees cooler than it is today. And the weather reflected it. The winters were much more severe with bad storms and cold water. The glaciers, particularly the North American ice sheet, were still in the process of melting. And the seas were rising about half a meter per century during this time. Yeah, in Doggerland, they were really feeling this. They were. And the rising seas were cold from the mixture of the cold, fresh water of the glaciers. Things were very unsettled. I'm imagining during this time the salinity in the sea um, and ocean would have been really off because of all of that fresh water. Probably that's also why it was colder as well. Yeah, it would have been a colder, wilder ocean is the impression I'm getting. But much shallower. Atlet Yam is 30 feet underwater, and it was above sea level at the time. The seas were shallower just because there wasn't as much water in them. The glacial sheets were still melting. Yeah, but anyway, it was also a time of potential. This is a quote from an article called Neolithic Avant-Garde Village in Israel Drowned by Tsunami from Mount Etna, which kind of gives away the ending a little bit about what this area of the world would have looked like at this point in time. Quote, Around 8,000 BC, the sea levels rose to 33 meters under the present-day sea level, enough to reestablish communication between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, meaning the Mediterranean and the Black Sea were connected via some waterway of some kind, with a possible effect on relations between Western Anatolia and Eastern Europe, meaning that people could move between these two on the water, and so people were possibly more connected back then, right? This, this article could be clearer. It could be clearer. This article is super interesting. It's really good. It's on a, a the website of someone who passed away who's, who did a lot of work like this. And the person who um, wrote the article translated a lot of it from French. So the language is a little sketchy, but the facts are really, really good. And I wanted to include them as they are so we could break them down. It's just a little bit confusing to me. I'm just trying to make it a little clearer to people. Yeah, and they were also synthesizing some really big papers, really difficult science papers that had equally confusing language. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> anyway, by 7000 BC, the sea begins to invade the Persian Gulf. So did the Persian Gulf have no water in it until then? or It might have been fresh water. What they're saying by the, the sea invading it means it would have changed the salinity. Oh. It's connected to the ocean now. What it might have been then was it might have been a freshwater lake, which then had the sea invade it and is now connected because of the change in the, in the levels of the sea. I didn't do a deep dive on that, so I could be wrong, but that might be what they mean here. I see. And when I say changing the salinity, like one of the things that's super important when we look at like seas and gulfs and freshwater things is like the salt content. So like if the Persian Gulf at this time was a big freshwater lake, you would have had a lot of people able to being able to live there because it's freshwater. If the seas start invading it and change the salt content, the salinity of it, then it kind of means that, yes, it's great they can get out to the ocean, but they can't drink that water anymore. Okay, so by 7,000 BC, the sea begins to invade the Persian Gulf. Around 6,000 BC, it reaches 12 meters below the present-day level, 
Around 5000 BC, it reaches its present level and will from that time on only undergo minor fluctuations. The great rivers, Euphrates, Tiger, Karun, had filled in their beds. The level of the groundwater table had risen in lower Mesopotamia, transforming life conditions in a region which heretofore had been a desert. So, in the roughly 1,000 years Atlet Yam was inhabited, roughly, the landscape was very different. The seas were lower. There were, you know, freshwater lakes where there are now just vast seawater gulfs. There were rivers in different places, etc. Places that had once been deserts were teeming with life. Places that are now deserts were teeming with life as well. Absolutely. And I wanted to include this because when we talked about like the Green Sahara, like it's really interesting what we think of these places now versus what they actually looked like back then. And these fluctuations meant that like this area was really rife to have a lot of life and and a very good life for the people who were in, in the area. Yeah. So places that had once been deserts were teeming with life and places that are deserts now, same. And for Atlet Yam, this meant that the seaside village also boasted an almost idyllic existence. The standard of living seems to have been fairly high. People were doing well for themselves in, a, in the Stone Age in this area. Following this with a quote from the New Scientist, which gives us a little more detail about the village. Quote, the 40,000 square meter site dates from around 7,000 BC. Again, different dates, making it one of the earliest and largest drowned settlements known. There were no organized streets, so the site is described as a village rather than a city. But its people lived in spacious stone houses, complete with paved floors, fireplaces, storage facilities, and wells. And courtyards! People lived in stone houses with paved floors and courtyards. The paved floors that just, like, blew my mind! So was it, like, a bunch of rooms arranged around a courtyard, like an ancient Roman villa? I'm not sure. They, it didn't give me that much detail, no matter how hard I looked, but that's kind of what I'm imagining. And did they have, like, individual wells in the houses, like the Indus Valley? Well, it didn't say. These are all the, the details we have. A lot of the site is still under excavation, and we'll talk about it later, but the people who are researching the site, they're being very careful not to um, disturb anything unless it becomes disturbed by winter storms because they really want to preserve it. So we could find other things that might change our mind, but um, I, I don't know the answer to that, and we may not know the answer just now. I know that there were definitely village wells, but I don't know that each house had a well. Okay, I was just getting real excited. I was like, oh my gosh, is it the Indus Valley? Yeah, and the fascinating thing is the wells, or at least the one particular well that they have excavated extensively, tells us how the settlement grew and progressed throughout time. And, you know, as I've mentioned, this quote seems to tell us that there were several wells in the village, but only one has been really excavated. And this well tells us a lot about the history of the area. The well was dug because of a need for fresh water along the seacoast. How exactly the ancients knew fresh water would be in this location? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, and it's fascinating. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So this is a quote from an article by April Holloway on Ancient Origins. Quote, Another significant structural feature of the site is the stone-built well, which I've heard is a dry stone well, meaning that it's like, you know, made of stone stacked without mortar, which was excavated down to a depth of 5.5 meters. Yeah, we know that the well was about 10.5 meters deep. Or 30 feet. Something like that. So we know how deep it was, and then they've only excavated a certain amount of it so far. Yeah. At the base of the well, archaeologists found sediment fill containing animal bones, stone, flint, wood, and bone artifacts. This suggests that in its final stage, it ceased to function as a water well and was used instead as a disposal pit. The change in function was probably related to salinization of the water due to a rise in sea level, so the water in that well turns salty. Do you know why that is? Because the water table was rising. Yes! Sorry, I'm such a nerd about water tables because I grew up on an island. And like water tables, it was one of those things that like they teach you about in school. And I find it super fascinating. You can tell where there's going to be fresh water based on whether or not plants are able to live there. So if you see plants that are able to live and there's grass and trees and stuff, they must be reaching into a water table that isn't filled with salt. How you know that there's no fresh water? I've talked about this before in the podcast. You know, here in North Carolina, there are trees that look petrified. They look like they've been turned to stone. And that's because the salinity changed and the roots sucked up the salt water and killed them. And they just stand there like ghosts. They're ghost trees. So we're talking about this well that became salinized as the water table rose because of the sea level rise. The wells from Atlet Yam had probably been dug and constructed in the earliest stages of occupation, the end of the 9th millennium BC, which is the 8000s BC and were essential for the maintenance of a permanent settlement in the area. So, an article on Heritage Daily breaks down the importance of the well even further. Quote, Surveys of the site, in addition to material excavated from the structures, has shown large concentrations of flint, 
originating from Mount Carmel over 10 kilometers away. In one assemblage alone, over 8,755 flint artifacts have been recovered, whilst across the site, numerous arrowheads, sickle blades, bifaces, spearheads, and bifacially flaked knives have been excavated, so lots of different kinds of stone tools. The villagers dug a steep well to depths of 10.5 meters through layers of clay and soft sandstone that was lined with stone courses and capped with a tumulus-like circular construction. Within the buildup of marine sediment inside the well, underwater archaeologists found hundreds of thermally fractured limestone pebbles, animal bones, stone tools, waterlogged and carbonized plant remains, and several fragments of human bone. Human bone. Skeletons where there shouldn't be. (laughs) Jenny's favorite topic. Yeah. Okay, so let's break down why why these details are so important. First, the existence of this well tells us that people were probably in this area from the end of the 9th millennium BC or 8,000 BC, probably. Because that was when the well was dated and when the fresh water was most likely in the area. The people who lived in this area dug down about 30 feet, as Jenny mentioned, deep into the earth to get to the fresh water. And then they created what I saw was a dry stone well. And this was crucial for life in the area. It allowed the people to live near the sea. The area around here in particular was a very fertile area, which also, as I mentioned, had fresh water. But the well also tells us another story. It tells us that the water level changed during the course of the settlement. The well dried up as the seas rose. The well became used as a disposal pit for animal bones, broken pebbles and tools, plant remains, and even human bones where there shouldn't be human bones. And what this shows us is that the people of Atlet Yam were fighting an encroaching sea and a changed environment even before their village was drowned. By the time the sea claimed Atlet Yam, it's clear that the cool, fertile village by the sea was now a place without fresh water or a place where its access to fresh water was changing. Perhaps at this point in time, people were moving away from the coast and away from Atlet Yam. According to one theory, this might have been the case. But 10,000 years ago, in 8,000 BC, how did the people in Atlet Yam know to put a well where they put it? I mean, like Jen said, you can look for plants, but this is like 30 feet down. I mean, those are some deep roots. How did they know that there was water that deep down? Well, the answer comes from the underwater excavations. Because Atliyam doesn't just have a series of buildings, walls, and wells. It also has a megalithic stone semicircle. That's right. There's an underwater Stonehenge in the Mediterranean Sea. Right? This is one of those things, again, like, I had no idea about this. I mean, obviously, it's not Stonehenge. They were their own people with their own beliefs. But there's a megalithic semi-stone circle at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. That's so much older than Stonehenge. I mean, when does Stonehenge date from? Like 2500 BC? I feel like this is 4,000 years older than Stonehenge was the number I think I read somewhere. The date that they were put up is a bit debated. So it's between like four and 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. This site was only found in 1984 and we're still learning so much about it. Yeah. So this is a description of the site from an article on antiquities.org. Quote, a ritual installation of megaliths was found at the Atlet Yam site. It consists of seven stones, one to 2.1 meters long, six of which are still standing upright, forming a circle diameter roughly 2.5 meters open to the northwest. 
The bases of the standing stones are covered with gray travertine, attesting to the presence of fresh water in the past. So travertine is a kind of mineral deposit that occurs around mineral springs, especially hot springs. Close to the standing stones, to the west, a few flat stone slabs, about 0.7 to 1.2 meters long, were found lying horizontally. On some of them were hewn shallow cut marks. It suggested that these features formed part of a ritual structure, perhaps associated with a freshwater spring that may have existed at the site, or maybe a hot spring that the stone circle was built around. Another installation consists of three oval stones, 1.6 to 1.8 meters tall, or long, I'm not sure, two of which are circumscribed by grooves forming schematic anthropomorphic figures. What does that mean? An anthropomorphic figure, what they're talking about is like human-like, like an animal person-like figure, such as it is. So the picture we're getting here is of a Neolithic worship site, a site built for the worship of potentially fresh water or tied to a sacred spring. I find that fascinating. So basically this stone circle, this stone semicircle was built around some kind of a spring, like a hot spring or maybe a freshwater spring, right? Yeah, I mean, I think because of the cup marks, it probably would have been a freshwater spring. Well, you can't really say because cup marks appear on a lot of monoliths. I know I've seen cut marks in um, Neolithic sites in France, for example. Um, we don't know what they mean. Yeah. So I read on another website that the stones themselves weighed up to 600 kilograms. 600 kilograms is 1,322 pounds. That's like more than a ton. So the question is, how were these stones moved to this site or were they naturally occurring? We just don't know. Right. We don't know if they're locally sourced or if they come from a long way off. I mean, I imagine they were relatively locally sourced, but who knows? What's more is that archaeoastronomer Clive Ruggles, he had some thoughts about this megalithic circle and what it might have been used for. And this is a quote again from that um, article that we've, we've used earlier, the one about uh, the, end by, the end by tsunami. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that article, parts of it were written by Matthew Migalit, and it was originally written in French, but it was translated by Anne-Marie de Grazia. Quote, the megalithic altar is surrounded with tombs and is reached by a curious narrow corridor, 20 meters long. According to archaeoastronomer Clive Ruggles, these parallel walls leading to the altar are oriented in the direction of the summer solstice sunrise. This is a, a different, a megalithic altar in a different place? I think it's the same place as the stone circle, but it was hard to understand. It's a little confusing. So the author goes on to describe burials and death rituals at the site. Quote, Ten tombs with bent corpses have been found, some under the floors of the houses and some in their vicinity. A few years after burial, the skull of the deceased was unearthed. Three skulls without their lower jawbone have been found, separated from their skeletons. The skulls were plastered with clay to fashion a mask, modeling the face. Shells were used to figure the eyes and irises. A wig could have been added and the skull emplaced at the center of the village, maybe on a platform to be used for an ancestor cult. And this is a totally fascinating theory. Maybe there was an ancient ancestor cult, but I only saw this in one place, so I don't think this is the consensus. Cult of the severed head. <laughs> However, it is clear that some sort of worship was going on around this freshwater spring in the megalithic stone circles, or circle. And going back to that well, that well that seems to have given us so much information, 
The people knew where to dig their well because of this freshwater spring. The well was found within this 40,000 square meter site. I didn't find out how close it was to within the stone stone circle, however, but one could conjecture if you had a freshwater spring, you would know if you kept digging down, you'd get to the actual water table and it would be fresh water. Yeah, and it's possible that the people found this freshwater spring, built their stone circle around it, dug a well in the vicinity and knew from the spring that this was a place that they could have a village. They could have had like a founding myth. Exactly, because ancient people were so damn smart. They were all about surviving, and thank goodness, otherwise we would not be here in our closets recording this episode. That's right. They survived so that we could be in these closets telling you this. Sorry Um, we let you down, guys. (laughs) I I feel like I've let them down a little bit, the ancestors with the clay masks. So it was these two big discoveries that led to Atlayam being regarded as one of the oldest and most important sunken villages on the Levantine coast, and possibly anywhere in the world, really. But it's not just the well and the megaliths that were so crucial to the importance of this site. No, the site gives us a time capsule of how the people here lived, and their lifestyle has been linked to the earliest form of the Mediterranean diet. You know, the Mediterranean diet that we think of today, modern Mediterranean diet, a diet rich in things like olives, chickpeas. Olive oil, vegetables. Well, they did, nope, they didn't press olive oils just yet, but we do know that they were consuming olives in some way different types of fresh vegetables. Also cooked vegetables because in the well there are carbonized plant remains. Exactly. Cooked vegetables, different kinds of meat, particularly fish and goats and sheep and cattle and pigs. We know at this point in time they were moving into the ability to both have animal husbandry and domestication of animals and also cultivation of plants. We know that because there were a hundred different plant species that they would find. And a lot of these plant species were then linked to different things that we see in the Mediterranean diet. We're going to cover it in a little bit. But yes, it's about sort of those nuts and grains and all that stuff that we see in our modern Mediterranean diet. The roots of it are right here at Atlet Yam. So this is a quote from the article, Neolithic Avant-Garde Village in Israel Drowned by Tsunami from Mount Etna, which is the one translated from French, right? Parts of it are from French. So quote, The inhabitants lived in spacious stone dwellings with paved floors, yards, fireplaces, storage facilities, and wells. Some 70 structures have been found, most of them rectangular in shape. There were no roads laid out. Some 30 families must have lived in the village. There were 70 structures. That's fascinating. 70 structures, right? And this is just the excavated part because a lot of it's not excavated. Scientists have found the trace of more than 100 plant species, as Jen said, which grew on the site or had been plucked in their natural environment. There are bone remains of wild as well as of domesticated animals such as sheep, goats, pigs, cattle, and dogs, which suggests that the inhabitants were also practicing hunting. In fact, the transition from wild to domesticated animals is well covered on this site. Young aurochs are found, as well as primitive domesticated goats. The top layer of the fill of the well contains only domesticated animals. Wild plants include wild grapes, poppies, and caraway seeds. Granary weevils indicate that cereals were being stored. There were stores of wild grain. Pollen analysis shows the presence of swamp plants, therefore of swamps. There was also wheat, barley, and chickpeas, which were cultivated. So they were farming. They were farming. They had grapes. They had chickpeas. They were probably making hummus. It was delicious times, man. Oh, so much good food. 
I know. This is what I'm saying. That's why when you ask me that question about the Mediterranean diet, I'm like, everything we think of in the modern diet is what they're saying they pretty much found here, which is wild. Except olive oil. (laughs) Well, they didn't have olive oil yet, but they had olives. Right. Fascinating. Right? So people didn't just live in the village of Atlet Yam. They thrived. They cultivated plants. They domesticated animals. And they were active fisher folk. They had yards. They had yards. They, they, this site is one of the earliest in the area that shows the change from people being hunter-gatherers to moving towards a form of farming, fishing, and subsistence living. This sunken village gave us a way of life frozen in time. And this way of life was more complex and intriguing than we'd imagined before. I can't get over it. <laughs> Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. But it wasn't just this evidence that was relevatory. The site also contained lots of bones. Human bones, my favorite. And these bones unlocked and also created so many mysteries. Mysterious skeletons, you guys. Love it. The well preserved bones of about 65 individuals. Wait, were there 65 individuals in the well? Not in the well, um, around the well in the, um, the site. Oh, the well-preserved bones. Oh, I thought, I thought this was like the... <laughs> oh, the well, yeah, the well-preserved. Should be well-preserved, yeah. I, yeah, I just totally misread that sentence. Okay, so there were not 65 individuals in the well. The well-preserved bones of about 65 individuals have been found at the site, and these bones tell us so many stories. First, as we've harped on a little bit, they tell us that the people of the village had a a very varied diet. And this diet was one that was close to what we call the Mediterranean diet today. And that's super important because we know the Mediterranean diet is a very healthy diet. It's a very old diet. And yeah, we still have to continue to say it because it's still true. Exactly. Second, we know that on average, these people live to about the age of 50. And that was unheard of. I did a Google about the average age people were living to during this time period. It was about 30 if you were lucky. No shit. Are we talking about just in this region or like throughout all of the Neolithic? Throughout all of the Neolithic, it was about 30. I wonder if that number is skewed by the number of women who died in childbirth. I mean, I'm sure it was, but also it would it would be dietary and the dietary would be different everywhere. So because of their access to a really good diet, and the ability to, like, hunt and gather and also farm and fish, they were able to live longer. Interesting, yeah. You know, think about it. There were some real harsh places where that wouldn't have been possible for a lot of people. This is so fascinating, and I feel like lifespans in the ancient world deserve a a deeper dive, because I know we've had conversations with experts about this where we've been parsing through that, where it's like, well, if the the average lifespan is 30, that doesn't mean that nobody was living past 30. What it means is that 
Some people were dying young because of war or childbirth, and some people were living to old age. Yes, but old age would have looked different. Like old age might not be 70, old age might be 50 because your body might give out at different times. I know like during ancient Greece and stuff like the old age, like during the more classical Athens and stuff was like 58 into your 60s. And you did have people who lived into their 70s and during, you know, classical Greece and early Rome because again of this diet. If you didn't die in war and you didn't die in childbirth and you had access to a relatively healthy diet, you had a good chance of living to old age. And that's actually really interesting because if the average age of death is 50 here, that means that there were a lot of people on the high end of that. Like there were a lot of people living possibly into their 70s and 80s, right? I think it's more like the average age of people they found that were buried there were 50. I don't know. So one thing about this site that's super interesting, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, is these people tended to be very peaceful. So we don't find like a lot of bodies that have like hatchet marks as if they went to war or signs of violence. We will talk about signs of disease. But as a result, people probably did live longer in their life expectancy if they made it through infancy and pregnancy would have been closer to 50 or 60 or maybe 70. These were mostly a peaceful people, as Jen said, not a lot of signs of violence on the skeletons, but they were used to hard work. One of the cemeteries, and there were a few different cemeteries, right? Or if not cemeteries, like burial places. Yeah, like burial areas where there were lots of graves. Many of the graves had men buried with stone axes, leading researchers to believe that many of the people who lived here were expert shipbuilders or woodworkers, And while we haven't found boats, many of the bones of the people show abrasions on the elbows and vertebrae, which has led to the belief that they were involved in lots of strong and vigorous rowing activity, which is actually really interesting to me because I feel like the boats that I've heard about that existed in the Neolithic were kind of dugout canoes where they're not rowing, they're paddling. Yeah, and they might have been more like hunting because the seas were shallower, but yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a really different motion. So I'm kind of just wondering, because I guess if you had a coracle, which is more of a round boat, you could have rowed that. I'm not sure exactly, because I didn't see a lot of research about the types of boats they would have had. Although the speculation is they would have been like a, a dugout canoe type boat. But there is a feeling that because of the abrasions on the elbows and vertebrae, they were involved in some sort of rowing or maybe punting activity. What's punting? So punting is like when you have a shallow bottom boat and you got those big sticks that you stick into the earth and move them around. Oh, right. Okay. They might have been doing something like that. I'm not sure. I didn't see anything that particularly told me, but they didn't have sails, so they must have been getting in and out to do their diving and everything else via their own power. Well, we do know that in Doggerland, there were um, elaborately carved paddles that were found in some of the underwater Neolithic settlements. Those were a bit younger, I believe, but there were paddles like you might find in a canoe. And dugout canoes. And it's possible they had paddles. Like, just haven't seen any evidence or explanation for any of that. And it just might be that they haven't found it yet. Or that it's degraded already. You know, we just don't know. Even though the boats at this time would have been a little bigger than a canoe or maybe a curricle or, you know, some kind of little boat, the people of Atlet Yam were master builders and they boated in the much shallower Mediterranean Sea frequently. Um, They would have had to stay close to shore. This would have been a wild sea, so I imagine they weren't going very far out, especially if they were punting. You know, they might have been going across to Cyprus and hugging the shore along different areas of the coast. Right. So this village might have been a hub for those who traveled around the ancient Mediterranean shipping routes, although they didn't, you know, go far out to sea. But they could have gone probably a long way hugging the coastline. 
They probably could, theoretically. Um, We don't know. We don't know what the Neolithic shipping routes would have been. So here's the thing, Jenny. That's not all. This is a quote from, again, that Neolithic avant-garde village in Israel drowned by a tsunami from Mount Etna. Quote, many skeletons display dental diseases and dental damage associated with the fabrication of fishing nets as well as in four individuals damage to the inner ear, which might have been caused by diving for seafood in cold waters. And I texted this to Jenny because it literally broke my brain. Like, first off, the Mediterranean Sea at the time was much colder than it is today. And the damage to the ears of the people who were diving in this water fascinated me. This shows that they were successfully fishing at this time period and maybe diving to get oysters and shellfish or octopus. I don't know, something deep water. Also, the dental damage was just shocking because I never thought that you would get dental damage associated with making fishing nets, but it does make a lot of sense, like holding the nets in your teeth during the net making process, biting off a line of of string, all that would cause wear and tear and damage on your teeth. Yeah, especially over a lifetime. Absolutely. And especially if your lifetime is maybe getting into your 60s. Like, that's impressive. Yeah, these are like old grizzled seafaring types. They've got one of those old granddad's uh, seaman's cardigan, you know. And the another thing is, I I think I remember you telling me that the skeletons with the inner ear damage were all men, and the um the skeletons with the axes were all men too, which makes me wonder if they had really rigidly defined gender roles in this village. It's tough to know because we we only have about sixty five skeletons. You know, we we know that sometimes. Instruments are found and people have been misgendered in history and this is all underwater and I don't know how much of and I don't know how many of these skeletons they're bringing up to do this research on. A lot of the time researchers have been known to gender a skeleton based on their grave goods and then later on, you know, they'd actually look at the bones and determine that the gender was wrong. So I'm not sure how much of that is going on here. Yeah, and it, it might be that they had rigid gendered roles. It might also be that graves of women haven't been found in this area because they're somewhere else in the village. There are some women who were found here who we'll talk about in a little bit, but it might just be that this was a a gendered graveyard. I I don't know the answer and research doesn't know the answer. So I don't want to like assume something that may or may not be true. Right. But anyway, so this wear and tear on the bodies that define daily life wasn't the only thing that researchers uncovered. Inside these graves, they found two different diseases that rampaged through the ancient settlement. The first was malaria. And this makes a lot of sense. The area would have been swampy and prone to mosquitoes. And we've talked about how they found swampy plants, meaning the existence of swamps. The other disease that we have evidence of seeing in this area is tuberculosis. And this is a quote from Ancient Origins. Quote, One of the most significant discoveries of this ancient site is the presence of tuberculosis, or TB, within the village. The skeletons of a woman and child found in 2008 have revealed the earliest known cases of tuberculosis in the world. The size of the infant's bones and the extent of TB damage suggest the mother passed the disease on to her baby shortly after birth. And that's not all. As Jen continued down this research rabbit hole, she found that this discovery wasn't just the earliest known case of TB in the world. No, it actually rewrote our understanding of the disease. Yeah, so here's what the Times of Israel had to say. Quote, The discovery of the earliest known cases of human tuberculosis, TB, in the bones of a mother and baby showed that the disease is 3,000 years older than previously thought. 
This discovery sheds light on how the TB bacterium has evolved over the millennia and increases our understanding of how it may change. Scientists might be able to develop more effective treatments in the future thanks to this discovery. The examination of this ancient DNA confirms the latest theory that bovine TB evolved later than human TB, in contrast to the original theory that human TB evolved from bovine TB after animal domestication. What this is telling us is during the domestication of cows, humans passed along the disease to cows, not the other way around. We gave the poor baby cows TB. This discovery actually changed our entire understanding of the origins of this disease. And this just literally floored me. Not quite ocean floored me, my dad joke for the, for the episode, but it was close. So that's what we found at Atlet Yam and what we understand about the people who live there. But how did this once prosperous village wind up at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea? Well, believe it or not, this is also hotly debated. And the answer depends on who you ask, or which country of researchers you ask. So according to Israeli researchers, Atlet Yam was abandoned gradually over time as the sea levels rose. I mean, it makes sense. Their wells were salinating. They had nothing to drink. You can see evidence of other settlements further inland that would back up this theory. As the seas rose, the people moved further in from the coast. Many researchers see Atlet Yam as a dire warning for how we're living our lives today and dealing with climate change. This is from the Times of Israel. Quote, Many shore communities face inundation in the coming decades caused by global warming. Sea level rise is usually cast as a doomsday scenario that will play out into the future. But Atlet Yam sends us a strong warning from the past. They were already battling chronic flooding 9,000 years ago. It's not that we expect sea levels to rise. They're already rising. Chronic flooding can only be avoided by adaptation measures like seawalls, levees, dams, flood controls, or as in the case of Atlet Yam, by moving away. The theory that Atlet Yam was inundated gradually and that most people escaped rising floodwaters by moving away is a very sensible one. It makes sense. It explains why we didn't find more bodies at Atlet Yam that were just, you know, unexplained skeletons. Like, the skeletons that we found were all intentional burials, right? If a huge disaster happened, wouldn't there just be more bodies everywhere? Well, maybe not. I mean, if the bodies were washed away by a tsunami, those bodies might have ended up quite far away from this site. People could have come back later to rebury them, or maybe they were underwater, you know, and got eaten by sharks. Who knows? But the reality is, we are watching something similar happen today in our coastal cities. As the sea levels rise from climate change, we're being forced to move away from places that we once called home. It's human nature, and it's probable that our ancestors had to do the same thing. That the end of Atlet Yam and this incredible settlement didn't come all at once and didn't end with a huge disaster. It's just that the wells stopped working. And this would have happened over a period of time as the sea reclaimed its prize. It's not a sexy or flashy theory, but it is one that does make sense. But, y'all, this is me. There is another theory. <laughs> and this theory is radically different and does involve a volcano. A volcano did it. A volcano did it. I mean, I'm sorry, not sorry here. Like, I did try not to have a volcano in this episode, 
But volcanoes are just going to volcano. We can't help it. It is the summer of the volcano. Anyway, so this theory comes to us from researchers in Italy, and it involves an ancient eruption of Mount Etna. Now, Mount Etna is a volcano on the east coast of Sicily that's still very active today and was active in ancient times. It's actually one of the world's most active volcanoes. But it's also thousands of miles to the west of Atlet Yam. How could a volcano have done it, Jenny? Shall I tell you? I think you'd better tell the people, Jen. (laughs) So, researchers in Italy have put forth an alternate theory as to what happened to the settlement of Atlet Yam. Now, this is again a quote from that article, Neolithic avant-garde village in Israel drowned by tsunami from Mount Etna. We finally got to this part. I love that they keep calling it an avant-garde village. Like (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be translating into English from French. That's all I can think of. Quote, according to Italian geophysicists, the village may have been submerged by a tsunami provoked by a collapse of a flank of Mount Etna. An Italian study conducted by Maria Teresa Pareschi of the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology in Pisa indicates that the collapse of the eastern flank of Mount Etna in Sicily 8,500 years ago, which is about the right time here, that we think this village went under underwater. So, the resulting mudslide created the depression known today as the Val del Bo, and it would have triggered a tsunami 10 floors, 40 meters or 120 feet high, with a speed of 700 miles per hour, more powerful than the Indonesian tsunami of 2004, which killed 180,000 people, which would have submerged some Mediterranean coastal cities within hours. Southern Italy would have been submerged within 15 minutes. Within an hour, the tsunami would have reached the western coast of Greece. After an hour and a half, the site of Benghazi in Libya would have been affected. In three hours and 30 minutes, the tsunami would have crossed the whole of the Mediterranean Sea, reaching the coasts of Lebanon, Israel, and Syria in the east. So what does this mean? About 8,500 years ago, 6,500 BC, Mount Etna erupted, and this eruption caused a huge landslide that we know went into the sea and triggered lots of tsunamis. These tsunamis have been linked to damage all over the Mediterranean. The tsunami would have hit Atlet Yam about three and a half hours after the eruption, and much like the 2004 tsunami, it wouldn't have been just one wave. It would have been a series of waves, maybe up to four, reaching the coastline and submerging it over and over again. The article cites specific evidence that the people of Atlet Yam fled suddenly. Quote, Under a layer of clay, a store of several thousand fish, orderly laid out according to size and cut open to dry or to be salted, destined for local consumption or for trade, as well as a large amount of stored cereals, seems to indicate that the village had been abandoned suddenly. The weevils! But also the fish! I mean, there's like piles of fish in the process of being processed. Jenny, I literally texted Jenny last night and I was just like, but Jenny, the fish, like my brain can't get over these fish. We were both going in circles about these fish. Again, the article continues, quote, the height of the tsunami wave reaching the Levantine coast would have been between one and two meters. That's um, between three and six feet, which at first does not sound like much. But consider that whereas a normal wave measures about two meters from crest to crest, the tsunami wave approaching the coast would have measured 80,000 meters or 200,000 meters on the open sea and collected itself like a spring, towering up on the shallow sea bottom in the seconds before hitting the land. What on earth does that mean, Jen? So I think what it's saying is like, it doesn't sound like it would be impressive, but actually because the sea was so shallow, 
And I've seen some reconstructions that it kind of funneled straight into this. So instead of just being like two to three meters, it actually was a lot taller because of the way that the bed of the sea was so narrow and also like the the way the land was laid out. So it would have been like a huge wall of water. I have questions about like just how a tsunami works. So from what I understand, like one thing that makes a tsunami deadly is it's not just like the surface of the water moving. It's like the whole water table moving in this wave, basically. Yeah. And everything inside is also moving. So when it comes there, everything gets pulled back. All that debris is going to come with it. So anything the wave sucked up as it was pulling back out is going to come crashing into shore. That could be fish. It could be people. It could be boats, anything like that is all going to come crashing at you. And again, most tsunamis aren't just a one localized wave. Some are, but a lot come in a series of waves, sometimes two or three or four, not all of the same strength, but all inundating more and more. Mm -hmm. So that is the alternate theory. And you know how much I love a volcano theory. But there is a problem with both of these theories, as you have probably figured out. And it comes down to the evidence left in the ground. The proponents of the climate change theory question how the megaliths would still be standing and in one piece if a tsunami of this size actually crossed the Mediterranean Sea and submerged the village. And that's a very fair point. Shouldn't these stones have been smashed and broken or flattened, destroyed on the floor of the seabed? But they aren't. They're whole and unbroken. But there's also a problem with the climate change theory. And that problem is this. Why would thousands of fish ready to be sent to market be left behind? And what about the weevils in the grain? It also doesn't make sense that the people who hunted and gathered, who got ear infections from cold water diving, would leave all those fish behind, would leave all that grain behind, unless something happened. So Jenny, what do you think? I mean, it's really hard because... If there was a giant tsunami, why would the fish just be lying on the seafloor like that, you know, perfectly laid out? Wouldn't the tsunami wash away the fish? And wouldn't the tsunami wash away the grain and the grain weevils? Unless it wasn't that big a tsunami. Unless it was big enough to submerge the village. But still would wash. I mean, those are not like, they're not heavy things. They would be washed away, right? Well, it would depend on what fell on top of it. Like, I don't know how these ruins were preserved. Like, if you had a stone roof or a stone wall that fell on top of it and then degraded over time, you would have potentially frozen it in place. Eh, I'm not convinced. Like, 180,000 meters of water, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer here. The other thing is that when I was doing the Doggerland episode... There is evidence of a tsunami like all around the rim of the North Sea from roughly 6000 BC or so. And you do see fairly clear cut evidence of debris being pushed inland from this tsunami like you can find it. So like did they find evidence of a tsunami like that? Well, they did find evidence of a tsunami inside the well. They found it in the sediment in the well that shows it would have been covered a couple of times by waves, potentially tsunami waves. Again... Neither theory has been 100% validated. They could also be covered by, you know, just regular waves based on, you know, slower inundation, right? No, I think what they figured out was like based on the pattern, they think it's tsunami related. And based on when they think they're dating the sediment too. I think, again, some of this is very complicated (laughs) geological stuff that I couldn't 100% parse through. So it is really tricky. But 
I believe personally that what happened here was probably similar to what happened in Doggerland. The sea was reclaiming this little patch of paradise slowly and then all at once. And by the time a tsunami hit the settlement, if there was a tsunami, it was possible that the villagers had largely moved on, maybe to higher ground, and were using this little village as a way station, a stopping point for boaters and rowers as they prepared and built boats and salted and preserved their catches and stores of grain for trade and voyages either further inland or hopping around the the coast. Of course, all of this is my conjecture. Research is still very much ongoing. Every winter there are dives which look at more and more of the site as it is uncovered by storms. Researchers are careful not to excavate anything unless it is in danger of being destroyed. They understand how fragile the site is and they want to keep it intact as much as possible. So for now, there is still so much we don't know. Until the Mediterranean gives up more of her ancient secrets, we'll never really know what happened. Or if a volcano really did drown this village. So that's it for this week. Join us next week when we dive into another ancient natural disaster. We don't know what it is yet. In the meantime, be social and say hi to us on Twitter at AncientHistFan and on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and threads at AncientHistoryFangirl. And we've got some patrons to thank this week. Our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash AncientHistoryFangirl. We welcome you signing up if you would like to support the podcast and get extra content. All the extra content. All the news about our lives, man. You can see the new little fan dog and the rescue kittens. I don't think we've uploaded any pictures of that on the Patreon, but maybe we should. Anyway, so we've got some patrons to thank this week. Apologies if we mispronounce anyone's name. PJ Shapiro. Savannah Dollins. And Bailey Peters. Thank you so much. Yeah, your support is what keeps this podcast going. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. 